Well, there is in that Habakkuk 3 passage that Jude just read for us, one word that I think is central. It's not a big word. It is a little one, and it comes at the end of verse 18. But the context of Habakkuk, which is going to set up the concept for us as we move into 1 Peter, our main text, the, the story of Habakkuk is really an amazing one. Habakkuk was a prophet who at the beginning of the book was really upset that God's people were corrupt. He was right. He had evidence of it. And he brought his case to God. And really, the book of Habakkuk is just a back and forth dialogue, really. It's Habakkuk saying something to God. God saying something back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk saying something back to God. And then God talking to Habakkuk. And it's just a little bit that way. A little bit more, uh, you know, um, clear than some of my times of prayer with the Lord. Um, But he's angry. He is angry at the beginning of the book. And he looks around and he's got to be one of these guys who's been calling people to action for a while. Think of him like an exasperated parent, right? He's been talking to the kids, telling them what to do, and they haven't been listening. They haven't been listening. And then as they've gotten older and older and moved into their teenage years, they've been rebelling. And so Habakkuk kind of just finally throws his hands up to God and says, God, what are we going to do about all these unrighteous people in your nation? Your people are corrupt. What are you going to do about it? And God says, you're right, they are. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're going to come in and punish your people. And Habakkuk says, yeah, great, good idea. No, no. Habakkuk says, wait, God, that's a bad idea because you're violating one of the principles. The principle is that the better you are, the stronger you should be as a nation. And we haven't been very good, so I don't want you to make us strong, but I don't want you to use a more wicked nation to come in and punish us. That breaks all the rules. You've always said that we'll thrive and prosper the more godly we are. So how can you use somebody more godly to do more damage to us? And you can understand his, uh, his sense of what's going on. How can, and other, others have struggled with this, right? Psalmists have struggled with it. Prophets have struggled with it. Habakkuk's struggle, though, really comes to the, the last response God gives him, where he says, essentially, you're right. The Babylonians are exhibiting a rebellion that deserves my wrath. But so are my people. So stand down. And at the end of it, what Habakkuk realizes he asked for was something that would be more destructive in Judah's history than anything that had come before it. The Assyrians had come through and they had punished the wicked nation of Israel to the north. But Habakkuk, who was speaking to the people of Judah, who was speaking on behalf of the people of Judah, who was talking to God about the people of Judah, they were supposed to be the chosen ones. And when the Assyrians had come through, God had largely spared them. But what Habakkuk didn't realize is he was asking God to do the kind of destructive work in Judah that he had heard about that had happened in Israel. And so when the Babylonians come in, they level everything. 
they take every bit of prosperity, every bit of strength, every bit of honor and nobility. They strip away the king who's there. They put a puppet on the throne. They destroy, ultimately wind up destroying both the palace and the temple. Everything that seemed to be the pride of Judah, the better, the more self-righteous of the two nations, right? They actually have it all taken away. And Habakkuk realizes at this point in the conversation, oh man, I didn't realize what I was asking for. That's what you're going to have to do. I really want you to revive our people, but that's what you're going to have to do. And God says, yeah. And so he comes to the end and he says, well then, if all the figs are gone, though the fig tree should not blossom, if all the produce is gone, there be no fruit on the vines. If all of the olive crop in more than just its industry for food, but its industry for everything that it did, lighting the whole city and the whole nation. And all of the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. You realize at this point, he's not talking about a famine coming in. He's talking about the fact that another nation is going to come in and steal all this stuff from them and decimate them and make them absolutely a poor nation. Then he comes to the word that I think matters the most in Habakkuk 3, and it's the word in. He says, yet, that was a significant word too. But for the point that I want to try and make today, I think the word in is most significant. Because nothing he said prior to that last bit of 18 there makes any sense unless the word in is said in the right direction. Because it would be absolutely insane to say, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the folds, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the barren fig tree, the empty vines, the ruined crop, the lack of food, and the absolute lack of flock and herd. I will rejoice in those things. That would be stupid. But Habakkuk's not stupid. In fact, he's giving us the source of joy by saying, I will rejoice in the one who's doing this. And that's a serious commitment on his part because what he's realizing is God says, I have plans for you, the opposite, right, of the graduation verse. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Habakkuk has just found out God's plans are actually to harm you. God's plans are to discipline. God's plans are to deprive. And what we are going to have to deal with is extreme poverty, the ruin of my nation. And yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And he says it again. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, if this was the only spot in the Old Testament... If Habakkuk was the only guy and the rest of the Old Testament record about what to rejoice in and why to rejoice was completely different than this. In other words, if it went to the way that Habakkuk was thinking in the beginning, I can only be happy when God is doing good. Well, then we might take this as an anomaly in the Old Testament. It's just, it's not. We see that kind of philosophy pervade the Psalms. It just, it just goes all the way through. Psalm 32, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And Psalm 32 gives us another depth of meaning that we kind of saw, and I give you a teaser about last week. 
We talked about hope not being a wishful hope last week, right? Joy, I mentioned, wasn't just sort of a giddy joy, not a happy joy. It was a boastful joy, a joy that looks at our circumstances and kind of defies them. It sings a defiant chant back at them and says, you won't determine whether I'm happy. You won't determine whether I can rejoice because my joy is not in what you can give me or take away from me. My joy is in the Lord. And Psalm 32 says the same. The one who trusts in the Lord. So in light of that, what can you do? You can be glad in the Lord. You can rejoice, O righteous, and you can shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. Why? Because there's another source of joy that is actually going through all the ups and downs in life. And it's not just the joy that the people have in God. Listen to Psalm 104. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Now that's not trying, that's not the psalmist trying to tell God what to do. Hey, God, I know you've been a little grumpy lately. Seems like you've been a little bit disappointed. Let me just give you a boost. Let me encourage you, God. boy, you're doing a good job. That's not, that's not what he means when he says, may the Lord do this, as though the Lord's doing a bad job of actually seeing all the positive things in his life, and we need to give him a little pat on the back. No, what, what he's declaring is, may the joy of the Lord, which is there, may it continue. May this be something that is happening because the Lord is rejoicing in what he has done. That means there's never been a day that when it closed, when we put our heads down, God reflected back on the day and said, Ugh, missed that one. Mm. Man, there's no regret ever as he reevaluates his works. There's nothing in God's past from our perspective that he would ever look at and not take ultimate joy in because he knows what he's doing. He's got the power to do it and he's getting it done. So the Lord is rejoicing in his works. So then what? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. Why? For I rejoice in the Lord. In other words, the psalmist is saying is, my joy, I just want to get it in the same plane as God's joy. But since Black Friday, you have been told that you are deficient of the things you need in order to be happy. It's the way our economy runs, apparently, for 11 months of the year. We run in the Red, we are in debt. We are not doing well until we tap into collective cultural greed and tell people only here can you be happy. Get this and only then can you be happy. Who do you want? What do you need in order to be happy? We can give it to you. You don't have the right person in your life. We can make you look the right way so that you can have the right person so then you can be happy. You don't feel like you've got the stuff or the conveniences or the comforts you need. Buy this, achieve this, and then you'll be happy. That's just the message that we live in. So if we come into a passage like this and we realize, oh, oh my goodness, it's like I'm waking up from a dream. Yeah, because we've been asleep all week long. We're asleep all the time because we are ingesting this this anesthetic that just makes us drowsy to the real source of joy. And so we just, we get a bucket of cold water in the face today. This world won't make 
you happy. It never had the ability, and despite all of its claims, it never will. But a believer boastfully looks at this world and says, no, I don't need what you're offering me because I have something that can never be taken away from me. And that is what Peter's talking about when he opens up his letter. Main thing to understand about the people who are getting the letter that Peter is writing is that they are getting beaten to a pulp. This is a persecuted people who are receiving Peter's letter. How about that for alliteration right there? And we want to see three points about the joy that Peter is offering. You probably heard it a couple times as Judy was reading, right? This sense of our rejoicing. And we're going to see three things that are, that are um, sort of highlighted here about what a true joy really is. And the first is this. True joy will always value the permanent over the transient. True joy will always look to see what endures and affix itself magnetically to that. Listen to Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, what Paul is talking, or Peter is talking about right at the very beginning, sorry, we don't do Peter a whole lot, so if I call him Paul a few times, I know who wrote the book, but, you know, just give me a a little bit of a break. Listen to the, the adjectives that he uses to describe the thing that he says is going to make us very happy. Because, and skip ahead a couple slides here, Uh, Isaac, here's the way it's going to end. Teaser, he says this, in this, you rejoice, right? So what we got to figure out is another small word, this. What is this, this, that he's talking about in everything that he's just said? I think one way of describing it would be this living hope that he's given us. But the thing I'm going to focus on is the inheritance that comes out of that living hope. So what, Paul, what Peter, and I did it again, what the author of this letter says is that we, having been born again to God, are not just born again to a relationship with God, we're born again to a new reality. We, having been dead and needing to come to life again, we're in a place of our deadness that we were essentially hopeless. As we look to the future, there was nothing that we talked about last week that would have been true of us before God intervened to bring us to life. And it's weird then, just as a segue for a second, a sidebar, a bunny trail, it is so weird that we envy the dead, isn't it? We are believers who've been brought to life and we look at the value system of a spiritually dead world and we say, why can't we have what they have? It's, it's part of the anesthetic that gets just poured into our system that we breathe in over and over. It puts us to sleep to what's really true. And Paul says, you've been born again from that. You've woken up from that. And now that you are alive to God, there is a hope that you have that is not a dead hope. It is a living hope because you are now alive. And the thing I want you to focus on is this. Something's coming in the future. We're going to call it your inheritance. Those kind of movies are fun, aren't they? 
The guy owns the pizza shop and finds out, wow, I had a great uncle and I was his only living relative and now I have $4 billion. Those are great moments. The Hallmark Hall of Fame things where some girl finds out she's a princess, Cinderella and all these kinds, right? The, what is it? It's you're looking out into the future and you're saying, oh, I have something coming that is so very different than the way that I live right now. This inheritance is mine. And what Peter wants to say, I got him right. Peter wants to say is that this inheritance is, in a nutshell, it is permanent. It's not transient. It is not fading away. He says instead, this inheritance is imperishable. Now, what's interesting about the three adjectives that he uses is that they are all in the negative. They're positive negative words, right? Here's what I mean by that. Negatively, we would say it posit- in the positive sense. This thing is going to perish. It seems a positive, right? But it's talking about something negative. So to make it positive, you actually have to throw the negative onto it, right? We had to say it's not perishable, which is bad. It is negatively imperishable, which is actually very good. The same thing's true of it being defiled or it fading, but let's just focus on the perishing. Peter says, in contrast to anything else you could ever be promised, this is the only thing that can never be taken. This is the only thing, to use the literal translation of it, could never die on you. Everything else is a pet. It's nice for a little while, but eventually you bury it. Eventually it fades. Eventually it's gone. And I know, I'm tugging at some of your heartstrings, Josiah's thinking about little Josh, his gecko. Who's going to die someday, Joe? Get over it, because he is perishable. He's not your inheritance. I'm so very sorry. He's not much more valuable or much less valuable than the inheritance you'll probably get someday from me anyway, but you know, what are you going to do? But Joe, you've got an imperishable inheritance. That's Peter's point. No matter what you think of that this world is going to offer, no matter how you think about your future or your kids' futures being secured, you realize that the best thing you could possess and that you could pass on to them has nothing to do with money and possessions. Because every one of them will die. They will negatively perish. And what he says is, though, but what God is doing for you is absolutely incapable of ever dying. It is incapable of ever, to skip two words ahead, it is incapable of ever fading. And so he says it in the same way. Negatively, things fade away, but positively, this is not just imperishable, it is unfading. It cannot ever be less clear than it is now. Which is pretty cool. One of the things that scares me about getting older is my existence, my memory, my, my sort of living in this reality fading. Those of you who dealt with relatives, or those of you who feel like it might be happening a little bit, I think we all kind of after 50 start. You guys got a little time. Well, except for you. And you. There we go. Sorry. It's kind of nice. You know, we've got our, our group over here. But let's just talk to you for a little while. 
it's tough getting old, you know, because you start forgetting something and then you have to start asking the question, is this a serious forgetfulness or is this a, you know, is this a forgetfulness that I have to start paying attention to? And if you've dealt with someone who's really dealing with a forgetfulness, it it can be a, a tricky thing, isn't it? But the joy of someone whose memory is fading now is that their inheritance is never fading. Isn't this what we are excited about as we watch aged Christians age with dignity? Not in a way that all of their body's working the way that it, it used to, or in the way that all of their mind is working the way that it used to, but in the way that their hope is never fading away from them. Because when I think about my memory, when I think about my body, when I think about my strength diminishing and fading away, that doesn't make me very happy. But if God said the only way to get into heaven is to have all of your faculties at the moment of your death, well, then that would be terrifying, wouldn't it? Because then I'd have to ask, is my eternal future determined by what's happening in this life right now? And Paul says, no, man, everything else is fading away except that. That's unfading. It is imperishable. It'll never die. And it will be strong forever. It will never fade. And what's the other thing that just bothers you about you? This world feels too familiar. Its allures feel too enticing. You feel too connected to the sin of this world and you feel defiled by it. And it's almost like if you ask the question, would God want me in heaven? There's, there's times in my life where I'd say, no matter how much he'd want me there, I just don't want to go and spoil it. Because there's something just dark about me. I still get angry in ways. I still struggle in ways. I still have thoughts that come into my mind. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so defiled just by that reality. And then I'm worried that if I take that somewhere pure, that I'll do the same thing. I'll, I'll take it to heaven and I'll defile him. Almost as though like I'm Isaiah and I'm before the Lord. And I say, oh Lord, woe is me. I'm, I got unclean lipped people all around me and my lips are unclean. And I just, I, I can't be near you because then I'll defile you. And God instead, like with Isaiah, takes heaven, brings it to him and says, see this pure thing it's touched you and now you're pure why it's because what's waiting for us is undefilable it is imperishable it is undefiled and it is unfading that's what you're waiting for and if that's true you're okay And joy can be an actual reality no matter your condition, your surroundings, or your internal state. True joy values this permanent reality over the transient. And so he says, you then are receiving this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and undefading. Why? Because it is being kept not here where it could be corrupted. It is being kept in heaven for you. And then you are the ones who are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what? Well, then rejoice! Why let this world get us down when it's going to fade away and something else is going to be there? So Paul, Peter says, in this, you rejoice. I'm going to need to get my water. Sorry. <laughs> Bye, everybody. There we go. 
the at home. The second thing Peter wants us to see about true joy is not only does it really kind of go for the permanent, it also endures waiting for the revealing. Because like any true inheritance, it doesn't come when we call for it. It comes when it arrives. And Peter says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see the waiting and the revealing aspects of that statement? He says, you have been grieved. That's what is happening in your past, and it is continued into the present. What has grieved you are these various trials, some significant, some insignificant. It doesn't matter. He puts them all into the pile of saying, these are the things that have grieved you. You are rejoicing in your inheritance, but you are currently being grieved. But it's happening much like the text we looked at last week. The difficulties like the shaping of an athlete are making a difference in your life if you're using them the right way. If you're allowing them to make you more bitter, then they're not going to accomplish this. But if you are holding on to your hope and if you are rejoicing your inheritance, then these are working so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, that faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's setting up a timeline, isn't he? Something's happening now. Something will happen then. And the reason you can be okay now is simply for this reason. You are waiting and you know something will be revealed. That's the way he continues on. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If his point that we have to wait for this wasn't clear enough in the first little section, it is absolutely apparent right here. You don't see him now and you don't see him. You haven't seen him in the past, sorry, and you don't now see him, but you still believe that out to the future, you will obtain something. And because of that, the present tense is you are rejoicing. So you haven't seen him, but you believe in him. You don't now see him, but you rejoice with glory because you are inexpressibly filled with glory Because there's something coming that you will obtain later on, and that is your ultimate salvation. Paul, I mean Paul this time, in Romans says it this way. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, hear the the way Paul talks about salvation just in that little verse? We often could ask the question, have you been saved? Meaning, has there been a moment in your life where God has done a definitive work? That is a very real biblical concept. 
We've been told that there was a time when we were dead and then we were made alive. That doesn't happen over time. It happens in an instant. But our definition of salvation, if it only includes that reality, it misses a host of other biblical texts. Because that definitive work doesn't just save us at that moment, it continues to save us all the way through to the very end. And isn't that what terrifies you sometimes? You know that that moment happened in your past. And yet you look at the way this last week went and you wonder, is this leading anywhere good? Is God doing anything in my life? Am I really going to make it all the way out to the end? That thing you're afraid of is the other definition of salvation. Not your initial salvation, but the perseverance of your faith all the way to the end. The preservation of your salvation until the very end of your days. And if that preserving work was dependent on our strength, our obedience, our mental capacity, on other people getting things around us, on God answering all of our prayers and doing good all the time in our world, how devastating would our sense of joy or devastated would our sense of joy be because we'd look to the future and say, it all depends on me. There's nothing to be happy about because I see how fickle I am. I see how weak I am. And I'm not even sure. I feel like I'm fading. I feel like I'm defiled. And the only thing that can make us happy in the middle of that is that God's saving work continues all the way out until the end whenever he is revealed. That's what we're waiting for. That when we arrive, he's waiting at the end. And he says, she belongs to me. I've been with her the whole time. Come on home. That is what salvation works, both in the beginning and all the way out to the end. And so our true joy endures the waiting of things where we have not seen him and we don't now see him, but we are waiting for him because we are remembering that our faith may ultimately be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Darren's perfection. No, at the revelation of Jesus and his glory. You see, the point that we're trying to make is ultimately that what is happening in your life right now, now when I say we, I mean me and Peter, but the point Peter's trying to make to me is that Darren when things aren't going the way you want, that's not an excuse to be whatever the opposite of joy is. Because if we said that there are positive negatives, so to speak, right, where we're adding a negative and something becomes positive, that this is fading and that's bad, but if we add the negative to it, then this becomes good. I think sometimes I struggle the opposite way. If I'd say this is what true joy is, I live oftentimes in unjoy, imjoy, earjoy, anti-joy. And it's hard to be able to preach what anti-joy looks like to as diverse a crowd as we are. Because sometimes, even just in my life, anti-joy looks like bitterness. Sometimes in my life, anti-joy looks like ingratitude. And usually it's a casserole of anti-joy sort of realities. But it's, What Paul's calling for is, you know when you're here, right? If you're honest and somebody just asked, you don't seem particularly joyful right now. 
And you weren't just buying into the, law, the allure of the world where you need other stuff in order to be happy, but you were, you were clearly in this headspace and you had to give an honest assessment of why anti-joy is permeating your life. You'd have to say, it's because I've forgotten the things that you've been talking about. I wasn't reading up on Peter's perspective lately. I haven't been in the Psalms and I haven't heard other people struggle. I haven't been sitting down with other believers and really just asking, how do you handle these dark nights of the soul? How do you make sure that anti-joy doesn't take up its its place, but you become ear anti-joy-ish so that you look at these things and say, all right, it is fading, but it's unfading. It is defiled, but it is undefiled. It is just not going well, but there's something about my inheritance that can never be anything but good. And if that's true, I'm not happy. I'm rejoicing. And I look at these other things and I say, how dare you tell me? How dare you speak into my life and tell me I can't rejoice just because you're here? No, I boast over you with my joy. I defy you with my shouts of joy that are not in you because they are in the Lord. And that's how verse 9 ends. James says it almost the same way. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you want to know what perfect means, talk to any of the momentum kids were there whenever Michael talked about what perfection looks like out of James 1. Or just go talk to Michael. He'll be at the door and he'll be answering questions as you go. But a sneak peek is it doesn't mean moral purity. Perfection in this sense doesn't mean that you're better than everybody else. You get 100% on every trial. It has something to do more with the second part of the phrase, complete, lacking in nothing, whole, healthy. Or for a better word, see Michael at the door. But James' point is the same exact point as Peter's. That these trials of various kinds are doing something that ultimately at the end of the day gets you so completely focused on your inheritance at the end that you're perfect now. Meaning you don't need anything else in order to be okay. True joy ultimately then can wait through this for that. And then finally, getting to the very end of this, true joy recalls that glories always follow sufferings. That's the path to glory. Listen to the way he ends. Concerning this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted. Always make them wait for it. Here's the phrase. Prophets after prophet after prophets were always asking, 
I see something out in the future. And like when I'm driving out and I see mountains in the distance and it feels like, wow, they're right there. And then I realize, whoa, there's a lot of ground between me and those mountains because there's some valleys and there's some hills and there's other ranges and, and stuff I just didn't realize. That's out there, but I just don't feel how far it is. And the prophets are doing the same thing when they're talking about Jesus. They're like, he's coming. And boy, I'm seeing something dark in his future and I'm seeing something glorious in his future. And it's like mountain ranges and I can't get a sense of the distance. And I'm so curious, God, could you tell me a little bit more about this? Because there's things that I really want to know. And what I want to know is that I'm predicting something about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That suffering precedes glory. And if we're unwilling to believe that that's true, we're not Christians. Because being a Christian is about having adopted Christ's story. And Christ's story is the epitome of this reality. So they're told, as the passage continues, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You hear the whole point that Peter is making? This whole salvation that ought to just thrill you no matter what's going on in your life. Good, be happy in that. Bad, be happy in that. That's the way true joy works. Peter said that point. Then he says, about this salvation, I want you to know, Every single time that anybody ever spoke about what Christ was going to do, they didn't really understand what they were talking about. And the other thing is that the angels who've been watching all this have longed to understand it. They have died to be able to know. They just longed to look into these things. And it is ultimately, at the end of the day, good news. What is it, Peter, that's this good news that the prophets want to know about, that the angels needed to know about? What was so good? It was this. Christ would first suffer and then be glorified. That's what Peter wants us to see. He could have talked about the gospel in so many other ways. Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. That was some of Paul's language. Could have talked about the gospel in the shorthand of the death. He could have talked about it in the fullness of of what the gospel's doing in the world. All of those are things that the prophets talked about. All of those are things that the angels wanted to look into. But when Peter summarizes the good news, the way he summarizes it is by saying, sufferings followed by subsequent glories. Why does he want to accent that? Because the people that he's writing to are currently suffering. And rather than them thinking, saints are always supposed to do well, saints are always supposed to prosper, saints are always supposed to be at the top of the class, the most popular, the most rich, the most successful. That's the way God's people are supposed to be. What Peter wants to remind them is, why? Because that's not what happened with Jesus. He came to earth He never sinned, he suffered, and then he was glorified. Paul said the same thing in Philippians. He said, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Does that sound like anything to rejoice in? 
It doesn't at face value, does it? The author of Hebrews looks at that and says, though, but it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. It was, according to the author of Hebrews, joy that was set before him when he was in the form of God and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was joy that was set before Jesus when he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. It was joy that was set before Jesus whenever he humbled himself and was found in human form and became obedient to the point of death. And it was joy set before Jesus when he endured the cross. The author of Hebrews says, scorning its shame. Well, why? Because that just ends in badness. He's naked and dead. Where's the joy? You, you just know Philippians 2 doesn't end there, right? Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't simply that Jesus came and suffered and died. It's that he came, suffered, and died, rose again, triumphantly was vindicated, and will return again in order to establish his reign over the entire earth. That is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. And that then means that whatever is happening in your life fits that pattern. It means we don't get saved in order to only experience riches and glory and popularity. If we will truly follow Jesus, then he's the one who said, do you see what I've just done for you? I'm your master and your Lord. What did I just finish doing? I was scrubbing all of your feet. Because they thought that that was going to be the most humiliating thing that was going to happen to Jesus that night. They thought that with him emptying himself and being treated like a servant, that the worst thing that was going to happen to him was that he was going to have scrubbed some crud off of people's feet. That he was going to be treated like the lowest of servants, and that was not the worst that was going to happen. But because he walked it all through, therefore God exalted him. And because he walked it all through, therefore God highly exalted him. Because he walked it all through, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is incomparable among the hall of all other names. There is no name like Jesus because no one has done what Jesus has done. And if we, hearing Jesus' words, are not above him as his master, but below him as his disciples then that means that this week when you suffer, God has not abandoned you out of his plan, but you have cause to rejoice because you can link your suffering to his and you can remember everything that Peter's saying, everything that James is saying, everything that Paul is saying and everything that the author of Hebrews is saying because at the end of the day, when somebody's asking you, why are you happy I see what's happening in your life. I see what you've lost. How can you follow a God who would let this happen to you? You can say, you don't have any idea, do you? This is not the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. But the worst moment in human history has brought me the greatest joy and will bring God the greatest honor.
And if that's true, then I can trust him through this. I can boast over what's happening. And I can rejoice, not in my circumstances, but in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you, this morning, have transformed our understanding of what joy ultimately looks like. Father, I thank you that Peter doesn't tell us how to rejoice. He just tells us that we do. Lord, I pray, though, that our joy would be a little more obvious to us and a little more obvious to others because our hope and our confidence in our future inheritance is a little more clear and a little more obvious to us now. Father, whatever joy looks like at Trinity Church, I pray it would be truer this Christmas than it has ever been for us before. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and rejoice. From the brightness of his glory. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought